Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches, the, teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Australia loves big things. Uh, lots of Australian towns have taken a, a good thing that's good about that town, so usually what they produce or manufacture, and made it impossibly big. So, you know, you've got examples of the big pineapple, the big banana. In person, I've seen down at Kingston, Larry the Lobster. A good thing made even bigger. Well, this morning we're going to see how Jesus takes a good thing, the Old Testament part of the Bible, or the Law and the Prophets as he refers to it, and see how Jesus not only doesn't do away with the Old Testament, but he fulfills it, completes it, and how he kind of puts the law and the commands for us to keep it, sort of puts it on steroids and makes it even bigger for our hearts and minds and the way we live our lives as, we, as citizens of God's kingdom. So a pretty simple outline today. Jesus affirms the law, Jesus fulfills the law, and Jesus raises the bar. Jesus affirms the law, fulfills the law, and raises the bar. First then, Jesus affirms the law. So the context of where we are is that Jesus has been announced as God's promised saviour, servant king, been shown trustworthy, he's been go going around telling people to repent of their rebellion against God and to instead follow him because he's bringing the kingdom of God. So being Jesus' disciple, uh, makes you a citizen of God's kingdom. And this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving, uh, it shows us what having a heart lined up with Jesus, what repenting really looks like. Uh, being a citizen of his kingdom, what that looks like. We've seen how being a citizen of heaven means being radically different in our heart orientation uh, and working the working out of that in our lives um, last week, Michael showed us that that means we're going to stick out like a sore thumb and the world won't like us. We can expect to cop heat. Well, that's all good because we've got God's approval. So, so far, Jesus has been making a big splash, performing miracles and announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. There's large crowds following him everywhere. And now his teaching is a big deal as well as his miracles. At the end of this Sermon on the Mount, we're told, this is from Matthew 7, 
verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the, as the teachers of the law. So the question in the air is, has this king come to do something new? Has he come to do away with the law and the prophets? What we now call the Old Testament. Is this king bringing something completely new and different? Well, no, says Jesus in the strongest terms. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. At verse 18, there are two untils, until heaven and earth disappear and until then not even the smallest stroke of any part of the law will be done away with until the end of time as we know it, when Jesus returns and his kingdom comes in full unopposed glory. So that's one until. The other one is until the law has, been, has accomplished everything it was made to do. Um, the reformers of the 16th century summarise helpfully for us three purposes for God's law, what it's supposed to do. It restrains us in our sinfulness. It condemns us so that we can see our rebellion against God for what it is. And the law directs us in what pleases God. Uh, we could also add the law shows us God's character, shows us his goodness, what his priorities are, what his likes and dislikes are how he wants the best for us, how he wants us to be able to relate to him. Lots we can learn about God from the law. Then verse 19, our standing in the kingdom of heaven will be determined by our practicing and teaching or otherwise of these commands. Now, probably by these commands, Jesus has in mind uh, the commands he's about to give in the Sermon on the Mount. But we shouldn't be like, oh, phew, I'm glad Jesus isn't talking about the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law so far, because that's really hard to keep. Because as we'll see verse, from verse 20, Jesus demands more than that from his followers. A righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The guys who are best in class, world's most expert at keeping the letter of the law. Jesus says, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law. But we want to say, it does though, doesn't it? I mean, when we did Galatians uh, in church last year, it wasn't half of that about how we don't need to be circumcised anymore. Um, all that stuff in Leviticus, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Don't eat shellfish. Don't use mixed fibres. Well, we do all that stuff, don't we? And we have a gut feeling about which laws still stand and which don't, don't we? I mean, read Romans chapter 14, verse 5, that says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And we think, yeah, that's fine, you can go along with that. I mean, celebrating holy days or not, each to his own, personal preference, all good. But we instinctively know that Paul wouldn't 
in a million years say one person considers marriage more sacred than another another considers all women fair game each should decide in their own mind well we just know that would be wrong it sounds ridiculous but what's our reasoned rationale for the difference in the way we treat God's law as we see it in the Old Testament I mean we need to know the answer to that because if we are salt and light to the world they're going to want to know they're going to need to be persuaded that we aren't just choosing which laws to follow based on what lines up with what they perceive to be our own prejudices and hates and fears lots of good Christian writers have come up with categories um, of the civil, ceremonial and moral laws to help us think about the law of the Old Testament. So civil, stuff about running a nation, well we think, well we're not in a theocracy, we aren't ancient Israel, so we can probably ditch all those laws. Uh, ceremonial laws, well we think we don't have the temple or priests or sacrifices. So all that's gone as well. Oh, well, then we're just left with the moral law that's eternal. So those are handy categories. So there's something in that. Uh, and much of the moral law can be discerned from well before any of the written code about the civil and the ceremonial law. But those categories aren't expressed specifically anywhere in the Bible. They're categories we've read into the Bible. But the main problem with those categories are lots of the law isn't, can't be neatly divided like that. So if we take the Sabbath, for example, the Sabbath's got moral, doctrinal, civil and ceremonial aspects to it. So which bit do we follow or which bits do we leave behind? And even if those laws can be separated out like that, Jesus says here to practice and to teach all of them, the whole lot. Every stroke of the pen remains, is Jesus' point here. So it leaves us with that question. Aren't we just, these days, picking and choosing? Well, yes, kind of, but not randomly. How we handle the law is determined by the fact that Jesus fulfills the law. That's our next point. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus upholds and affirms the law, but he doesn't leave it as he found it. Jesus doesn't leave the law and prophets as he found them. He fulfills it. Verse 17 again. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word translated fulfill here means literally to fill. It's the word we find later in Matthew's gospel when the disciples fill their nets. It's got the sense of bringing to, compl to completion, of, of getting the job done that has been started. So for example, a house builder might get the building to a certain point and then get in tradies to make it Liverpool, the electricians, the plumbers, decorators, tilers, but those tradies don't do away with the original building and start from scratch. But they don't leave it as they found it either. They've got the same end and purpose as the original house builder. 
Now, how exactly Jesus fulfills the Old Testament is a huge topic we could spend weeks on. So today is just the broad brushstrokes. But if you were with us in a Christmas series looking at Matthew's Gospel, you'll see we've already had lots of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament already. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in directly making come true uh, prediction prophecies from it. So for example, Mary's pregnancy and Jesus naming, remember Matthew chapter one, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill, same word, what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there was the same thing with him being born in Bethlehem, same thing with his exile and return from Egypt. And Jesus will later claim that Isaiah 34 verses 4 to 6, the blind seeing and the lame walking, all of that, he'll claim that all of that is about him being made true by him. So there's directly making specific predictions coming true, that's one way Jesus fulfills. And then there are ways in which Jesus kind of completes the picture begun in the Old Testament. So for example, when we did Hebrews, we saw how the sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. In Leviticus 16, that's all about the Day of Atonement, and the priest would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people, but we'd have to offer one for his own sins as well. Well, Jesus fulfilled the law in that he keeps the law perfectly so that his sacrifice is entirely for our benefit. But just imagine being that priest on the Day of Atonement. You're looking at that poor bull thinking, this creature's got no idea what's going on here. Here he is, bearing my sin. <laughs> Even if I told him exactly what I'd been up to, he wouldn't understand a word of it. I don't know how this deals with my sin. I know God told us to do it, so I'll do it faithfully. But how does it help, really? I mean, we'll only have to do it all over again next year. I wonder where it's all heading. Those sacrifices just pointed to Jesus. They couldn't in themselves deal with our sin permanently. But they pointed to Jesus who could Jesus, whose sacrifice would be effective, really effective, once and for all in dealing with our sin. And there are other things we could follow through in the Old Testament that Jesus completes the picture of, like the temple or the promise of a Davidic saviour, rescuer king, a servant king. But then even more broadly, there's a sense in which all of the law and the prophets is fulfilled by Jesus. So it's no exaggeration to say that Jesus is claiming here, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets because the law and the prophets is all about me. 2 Corinthians 1.20 puts it like this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. So to really understand the Old Testament, to get the complete picture, we need to read it 
with our gospel goggles on. Our gospel goggles. That is, we need to read it, seeing how Jesus makes it come true. How Jesus is the thing that it is pointing to. How Jesus is the better or fuller example of that type of thing that we're reading. Uh, we got a game at Christmas called Jumanji. And in it there are these action cards. It's got in instruction cards if you like. But you can only read the writing if you put it in this coloured filter. And that's kind of what we're doing when we look at the Old Testament. Through the filter of Jesus fulfilling it. That's when we really see what's there, when it really comes alive, when it gives us a better appreciation of God's steadfast love for us, of the depths of his mercy, of the lengths he will go to to save us. Because it's all about Jesus. Later in Matthew's Gospel, we get more insight into how Jesus thinks about the law. A teacher of the law asks him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest, the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Knowing Jesus' priorities, and knowing that Jesus fulfils filter, helps us to know how to handle specific laws. So these days we don't sacrifice bulls because we know Jesus is the real sacrifice that that was just the shadow of. We don't have a food and clothing system of clean and unclean because we know it's our hearts that defile us and we know that Jesus cleanses us from the inside out. We don't have a temple or a tabernacle because God lives in us by his spirit and builds his church by his spirit. So it wouldn't be honouring to God and it wouldn't be loving our neighbour to keep those laws in the same way that they used to be. Because that would be to deny that Jesus' life, death and resurrection meant anything. The very thing that those things were pointing to. So some parts of the law have in practical terms done their job. They've been superseded by Jesus. Now they're not done away with because they've still got heaps to teach us about God. There's still scripture but no longer instructions on what we must physically carry out on particular days. So for example back to the Sabbath laws thinking about those through our Jesus fulfills filter. So it, it's still daft to never take time out to work from work to actively joy God and his creation. But it would be denying the new deal, the new covenant we have under Christ to insist that we keep the Sabbath of the old covenant deal. It's still dishonouring to God and unloving to our neighbour to steal and murder and commit adultery. So you see, these choices about how to implement God's laws in the here and now, they're not random or arbitrary. They're centred on Jesus and how he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. So Jesus being okay with us as we eat a prawn sandwich whilst clean shaven and wearing our mixed fibres, that's not Jesus doing away with the law any more than Neil Armstrong did away with 
looking at the moon with an ordinary telescope. An ordinary telescope can still tell us something, still tell us lots of things, but not as much as we now know in the same way through people being there in person. We're not going to get that deeper insight from the telescope. Now, far from doing away with the law, Jesus raises the bar. Our next heading, Jesus raises the bar. So just as Jesus completes the picture of the Old Testament concepts of temple and sacrifice and Davidic king and sacrifice and other things, so he also completes the picture of keeping the law. So instead of an outside-in, formal, rote keeping of rules, what Jesus commands of his followers is an inside-out, lining up of our hearts, who we are at the very core of our being, with him and his purposes. He calls us to line our hearts up with the author of the law. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If Jesus is on about keeping rules, well, that's a tough ask. I mean, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the world's expert at keeping the rules of the law. No one was going to do better than them at keeping rules. But Jesus is after a righteousness greater than theirs, a heart righteousness. This Sermon on the Mount will go on now to show us what that looks like. So remember, the context of what Jesus is saying is a calling for a radical, total change of heart in repentance, lining up our hearts with his, and resulting in a life that sticks out like a sore thumb for God's glory. Remember, this call to be righteous is not in order to get into right relationship with God. We could never do that on our own. No, we're already in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus based on his righteousness. So this righteous living that we're called to is how we are to live in response to that grace, not to earn that grace. The righteousness Jesus calls for is instead of calculating the minimal possible standard required to say, I obeyed the law, it's rather taking the standard given in the law and kind of reverse engineering from there, asking the question, along the way to meeting that, what most honours God? What is loving my neighbour most? What's on God's heart behind this law? So do not murder becomes, don't even act in anger. Do not commit adultery becomes, don't even think about someone in a lustful way. Even love your neighbour becomes love your enemy. A much higher bar. See, the law always taught us about God. And now God the Son, Jesus, is here in person to show us living it out perfectly and to express in words his heart behind them. 
So the call really is for perfection. Now, we could jump to a scripture right now that tells us that Jesus perfects us, that he takes up our slack and presents us perfect before God with his record and all that through by grace, through faith. And all of that is perfectly, wonderfully true. It's just not Jesus' emphasis here. Jesus' emphasis here in this bit of the Sermon on the Mount is, I haven't done away with any of the law. In fact, I'm raising the ante. I'm making the law. I'm doing a big law. And I want you to honour God by lining your heart with mine and aiming for perfection. See, Jesus' kingdom is not a lawless one. Sin matters to God. Honouring him matters. Loving our neighbours as ourselves matters. So it's not Jesus died for my sin so it doesn't matter what I do. It is my sin matters so much that Jesus died to save me from it. And it worked. As citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we see what lengths Jesus went to to do away with evil, to bring God's good rule and include us in his good rule, in his kingdom. And so seeing that, we say, with God's help, I'm going to live like I hate sin as much as he does. I'm going to live like I love his rule as much as he does. The thing is, we know that we will fail to be perfect. Aren't we just setting ourselves up for failure and crushing disappointment and constant guilt? How can we respond to that reality? Well, we shouldn't just shrug and say, ah, well, it doesn't matter. Because it does matter to God. We shouldn't be like the Pharisees and put a ring of rules around every rule to make sure we never break the rules. Because that will make us either proud of our own performance or crushed when we fail. And ultimately, even if we do keep the rules, we won't really mean it. Now the right response is to keep going back to Jesus, back to the cross, back to the Beatitudes. So Jesus tells us to be righteous, to be perfect. We aren't, so we fall on his grace. We know his blessing and it drives us on all the more to want to serve and honour God and to be seeking to live rightly. Jesus' high demand, big law, helps us to see that we're poor in spirit, that we come to God empty-handed, bringing nothing to the table but our shame. Jesus' big law helps us see all the more painfully clearly how rotten our sin is, so that we mourn it. Jesus' big law means that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And remember the promises for those with those things on their heart? Blessing. 
blessing, God's favour, God's approval.